I'm Gregory Warner. This is Rough Translation. A show about how something familiar in the United States might get translated in some other part of the world. Last winter, NPR Pakistan correspondent Dia Hadid, who more often is covering terrorism and the Taliban and Malala, paid a visit to an afternoon tea party in the Pakistani city of Lahore. A tea party hosted by the Jane Austen Society of Pakistan. Imagine stepping off a noisy Pakistani street into an 18th century British drawing room. The teacups are white bone china. The bookshelves are lined with leather volumes. Women are in period costume. A maid wheels out a trolley that's filled with delights from Jane Austen's time. Um, These are some scones with clotted cream. And because this is Pakistan, uh, Pakistani high tea, there's some like fried chicken and like some salty, spicy tidbits to also snack on. (laughs) Just for a little zing. The founder of this society is Laleen Sukera. She is hovering over the trolley, fanning her long hair with a black lace fan. She's keeping one eye on the guests and another on her three children. What is that? There's Misha. Misha. Isha and Amal. Misha's studying opera. Okay, ladies. And Laleen holds a Jane Austen-themed quiz. Yeah, everybody here has to take part. What formal event is the turning point in Elizabeth Bennet and Darcy's romance? Is it Mansfield Ball? Netherfield Ball? I know Jane Austen. Or Longburn Ball? I've read some of her books and I've seen some adaptations. But this... Anyone? Does anyone know? This is like Jeopardy Championship-level Austen fandom. Jane Austen has a surprisingly intense following in this former British colony. Laleen and her big sister would travel to the UK to visit the landscapes and towns of Jane Austen novels. We would go to all these things where we would not only be the only brown people, but we would be the only people under, what, 60? So it would be like elderly white people everywhere and it would just be her and me. And tell me about yourself, are you a Lizzie? I haven't read enough Jane Austen to know what a Lizzie Afterwards, I'm talking to Laleen's older sister, Malia Lone. Um, I'm from Australia. She's got perfectly arched eyebrows, big black eyes. I don't tell Malia that I'm a little sceptical of this gospel of Jane Austen. Then she says something that I find intriguing. Hmm. What resonates with us is that she taught us how to navigate the world. Jane Austen helped them figure out how to live as women in present-day Pakistan. She said, it's okay, it's okay, you have constraints, but then she teaches you how to remain in the system and yet do something for yourself. Over the next couple of months, this little story I was reporting about a literary club would get so much more dramatic than I ever expected. These kids running around here at the tea party, they'd be taken away from their mother. My own engagement would nearly rip my family apart. And Jane Austen should play a strange role in all of it. Coming up on the show, matches will be made, cops will be called, decorum will be broken, and a seasoned war correspondent might be persuaded of the power of drawing room comedy to understand even her own life. Call it Pride and Prejudice, the Islamabad edition, or call it Rough Translation. Back after a break. 
Support for NPR and the following message come from TransferWise, the cheaper way to send money abroad. Built by the brains behind Skype, TransferWise takes a machete to the hefty fees that come with sending money abroad. So don't get stung by a bad exchange rate or sneaky fees. Join the 2 million people who are already saving with TransferWise. Test it out for free at TransferWise.com podcast or download the app. It's the wise way to send money. When the Supreme Court heard the travel ban case this spring, Donald Trump, President of the United States versus Hawaii, one family's story came up in oral arguments. This is a 10-year-old daughter in Yemen with cerebral palsy who wants to come to the United States to save her life. What happens to that girl and her family? On the next Embedded, on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with Rough Translation and our story from Dia Hadid. We're going to start this story way back, before the tea parties, when the two sisters were children. Tell me more about the mushroom house. So I always felt like Alice in Alice in Wonderland because I lived in a mushroom. (laughs) The sisters grew up in a mushroom-shaped house in Lahore. Lahore is the cultural capital of Pakistan. And this is a house unlike any other. It has... A shade instead of a roof. Uh, it was painted in that style that's dripping. So it was a mushroom that was melting. <laughs> it had a bridge. This house is built by their father. My dad, he's like that. He's a magazine publisher. He's eclectic, he's bohemian, and he's also incredibly wealthy. My mom was a practical one, the doctor, the gynecologist. She's like, this is such an impractical house. But it was like, we loved it. But on this night... It's the scene of an argument. There was this big commotion, family commotion, and we were all crying. All the girls are crying because they're all been caught. Mali is 17 years old. Her boyfriend, Ahmad, was sending her gifts through her little sister, Laleen. Very conspicuous items like teddy bears and like perfume and love letters. And one of the love letters had been found. There was a hue and cry. What, what do you mean by hue and cry? What would happen? Well, my mom would freak out. She would say, what is this? You're not allowed to do this. You know, you can't have like this guy's things here. The girl like Malia can't be seen as having boyfriends. It would ruin her reputation and it might even ruin the reputation of her sisters. They did not want you to date this guy. Yes. Why? Well, this is the 80s. Before this, my parents' generation was much more liberal, as in they had cabarets in Lahore. And there were actually places where you could go and buy booze. And in the 80s, when we grew up, it was, it's called the confused generation. It was the harshest years of a military dictator who was ruling Pakistan. Alcohol was forbidden. Gambling was shut down. So it was really, really conservative at that time. Of course you didn't want your daughter talked about Families like Malia's were under suspicion. They were bourgeois, they were rich, they were liberal. They could not afford to be seen as that kind of family of the old regime. (laughs) They had to behave. And so Malia's parents forced her to make the decision of her life at 17. She either marries this boy or she continues her applications and goes to college in the United States where she'd always wanted to go to an Ivy League school. But she can't have both. It's either marriage or college. Maybe not surprising for someone who grew up in a mushroom house, Malia comes from the kind of family where in times of hard choices, you turned to literature. 
that's all I had was books. But at first, it's not Jane Austen she's reading. Anna Karenina, Madame Bovary. I mean, I read them as a little girl. And the one thing that was always hammered home was that if you're a bad woman, if, you're, if you, you know, transgress, then you die. Wow, that's, that's such an interesting t- lesson to be taken from that, considering you're, you're in a house where, like, where anything is possible, and yet I picked up the what's not possible part. <laughs> but Malia will discover another book, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. And she feels like this book provides more practical advice on her situation. A single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. <laughs> and who better than one of our five girls? <laughs> yeah. It's a joke if you were to choose me. me. <laughs> so the plot of Pride and Prejudice, which has been made into films and adaptations, is that there's five daughters from the Bennett family. There's no sons. And so the property that they live in is going to be bequeathed to their distant cousin once their father dies. The law of primogeniture, which is if there's no son, then the father's estate goes intact to his next male relative. We actually have a law like that here. You don't have any sons. A part of your estate, a man's estate, goes to his brothers. And how can it affect them? Oh, Mr. Bennett, how can you be... Mrs. Bennett is very worried because when her husband passes away, her daughters will be left penniless and they will be out on the street unless they're married. They're under a deadline to get married and they must be married off well. A young man of large fortune from the north of England. They were so limited. They had limited options and they had limited freedom and they had limited financial control over their lives, which is exactly what we go through. And he has 5,000 a year. I mean, my mom was not exactly like Mrs. Bennett, but my mom always worried, oh, who am I going to get my daughters married to? So they have to have this impeccable reputation. Reputation is most important. In our culture, even now, it's the same as during Jane Austen's time. So Malia kind of has her own reckoning about this, and she realises that what are her choices? She's not going to inherit a lot of money from her family. She could either marry now to this boy who's chasing her and who spoils her, or she could go to college in the States, come back, and then maybe get married off to somebody else who maybe she won't like so much, maybe she won't really have a say in it. In the Pakistani high society that Malia is part of, just as in Jane Austen's England, matchmaking is a community activity. Men and women don't get to know each other by going on dates. That's not allowed. So courtship unfolds in these public arenas of balls and weddings. In Pakistan, there's these older women who turn up at weddings. Rishta aunties, relationship aunties. <laughs> They're there to try match up men and women together. At the wedding? At the wedding. Think of it like an IRL, like in real life, like Tinder profile that you're just like swiping through. <laughs> if, a, if a Rishta auntie like sees a woman at one of these weddings, she'll go up to her and, you know, and ask her like, how old are you? How much do you weigh? Is that your real skin color? Is that your real skin color? Yeah, yeah. Because women here use skin bleaching products to make themselves look paler. Oh. <sighs> the thing is, is that I, I was used to that coming from an Arab family. Dia's family lives in Canberra, the capital of Australia. They're immigrants from Lebanon and Egypt. When I was growing up, one of my cousins got married at 14, and my auntie looked at me and, you know, and she said, it's best that she got married at 14 because after that, a girl's looks start to fade. 
What are these Rishta aunties looking for? They want a woman who is tall, but not too tall. Slim, but not skinny. You know, if she's professionally accomplished, that's even better. Think about it like accomplishments from Jane Austen's time. Oh, certainly. No woman can be really esteemed accomplished who does not also possess a certain something in her air, in the manner of walking, in the tone of her voice. And to all this, she must yet add something more substantial. In the improvement of her mind by extensive reading. It's not that anyone wants her to work, but it's nice to have a professionally accomplished wife in the house. That's why so many Pakistani women who graduate as doctors don't ever work as doctors. I'm no longer surprised at you knowing only six accomplished women, Mr Darcy. Lizzie Bennett from Pride and Prejudice, one of the Bennett girls, resents having to rack up accomplishments just to prove that, you know, she's ready for marriage. And so does Malia. So in the choice between going to college or picking a guy who already adores her, she knows what she's going to do. Ahmad was not allowed to come till they had decided to accept him. So you know how in the West you get to know each other over drinks? We get to know each other over tea. My cousin Sonia played a prank and she put red chilies in Ahmad's teacup. And then he drank that tea. (laughs) And he drank it with a straight face. And then what happens? You start your new life with Imad. I was happy that I didn't have a curfew and I could. I wasn't allowed to wear sleeveless before I got married and I could wear sleeveless. And we went on a honeymoon and Imad let me buy a bustier, Madonna style. I could go to parties and we went out every night. So how please, I was in paradise. You're, you're describing this, this, this life that was exactly how my cousins were in the 90s. Like they'd get married and then they'd get to like do things that they wanted and... They'd go out to parties. Exactly. It's very liberating. (laughs) Yeah, you get it. The one person who didn't get it was Laline, Malia's little sister. It affected me a lot. Such a smart girl. She's a valedictorian and she didn't finish college to get married. I mean, she did it over a boy. That marriage that her older sister made to have more freedoms and more control over her life... Laleen saw that same choice as a surrender. And I was like, I am not letting that happen to me. I'm going to conquer the world. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm not going to let these dumb local boys, no offense to my brother-in-laws and whatever, but I'm not going to let them, like, take away my freedom. So when Laleen turns 17, she goes to the United States for college. When she graduates, she moves to Manhattan, where she starts working as an intern for Merchant Ivory Films that does period dramas. I had Vanessa Redgrave on the phone. I had Hugh Grant's phone number. I went to Liam Neeson's house. But Laline was very protective of her reputation, even when she was like a fun 20-something in New York, because she had to think about the society she was returning back to. I didn't even let anyone kiss me, and there were many, many opportunities. During, like, the great era of Sex in the City. A lot of the places on Sex in the City were places where we'd be hanging out. And? I called it abstinence and the city. <laughs> it's like when you have a season in London 200 years ago. Our position as a family, our very respectability is called into question, but it is wild behaviour. Do you sneak out and go to a masquerade ball or do you, you know, go properly to a debutante ball? You know, do you try to meet people on the sly or do you just keep it kosher? It's saving your get-out-of-jail-free card in a way. You know, hearing you describe Aline's life and her choices, it sounds like you 
get the dilemmas that she was facing. I really empathize. I really empathize. I left home at about the age of 22. My parents were really protective of me, and they're also quite conservative. And for years, we didn't really talk to each other. But I always made a point of going home every year and visiting my parents. And when I would go home, I'd respect their rules. So I'd dress modestly. I wouldn't, you know, talk about boyfriends or parties or drinking alcohol or any of that. I'd be a compromised version of their good daughter in their house and be my own person outside of their house. Dia's approach was different from Laleen or Malia. It wasn't freedom through marriage, and it wasn't having a chaste single life. She put up a firewall. As long as her parents back in Australia did not know anything about her private life, she could keep her family and her independence. I think Laleen in New York was walking a similar tightrope. Abstinence in the city. But there's two things that bring Laleen back to Pakistan in a hurry. The first is 9-11, and that makes it so much harder for Pakistanis to get work visas in the United States. I lost my job because they didn't want to sponsor my work visa. And the second is her mother. Mommy said to me, she said, listen, Lali, come home for a little while, spend some time with us. Now, I didn't know what she meant, but I know now. She was obviously sick and wasn't telling me. Her mother knew that she had breast cancer, and she knew that she was going to die soon. And my mom was really worried about me. She was like, she needs to get married. Who's going to take care of her? What's going to happen to her? What's going to happen to her when we all go? So Laleen decides that she's going to get married. I wanted her to feel okay about me. I wanted her to be happy that I was settled. But she doesn't want to do it the Pakistani way. No Rishta aunties, no stuffy living rooms filled with prospective grooms. Yeah, I did pretty much refuse to be introduced to people. Flat out. I said, no, please no. Ugh. She's holding out for a Mr. Darcy. And on cue, enters a single man in possession of a good fortune. We'll call him Mr. Z. I think if he continues so, she's in a fair way to be very much in love with him. When I looked at him, I was surprised. I was like, oh, he's not unattractive. Was he handsome? I wasn't like, wow, he's hot, because I never used to do that, but I guess he was. And he was rich, and he was always travelling for business. Malia, her older sister, was way more cautious. This was a guy who was very eligible. He was very, like, sought after in Islam mother, so we had heard at that time, but we did not know who he was. He hadn't been vetted by the family. He then came to the ball that we had organised. He went to Karachi to our friend's wedding. Always he was there in the background. She'd look around and he'd be there. Like, stalking her. Laleen finds this terribly romantic. She should show more affection, even than she feels, not less, if she is to secure him. <laughs> secure him! But she can't get to know him, because in Pakistan, you couldn't just date a guy. Before she is sure of his character, before she's even certain of her own regard for him. But of course! She had to do what would be familiar to any Jane Austen heroine. She had to kind of figure out who he was during these dances, these weddings and these balls. Over here, there's an expression, which means like there's a beard in your stomach. Laleen tells me this expression I'd never heard before. A beard in your stomach. It means a guy who appears progressive, but inside he's like an inner fundo, which is like short for a fundamentalist. He appears really progressive to you, and then all of a sudden he'll be like, why are you doing this? You're not allowed to do this. You can't wear this. We, we used to call them MMID. What's that? My Muhammad is different. Oh. Whoa. 
we have so many names for the same person, don't we? So Laleen decides to test Mr. Z's character. I was like, let me show this guy my worst self. Let me like exaggerate. So I remember we were at this party and I went with my cousin and I was like, what the heck is he doing here? She starts dancing. She's got a lot of men around her. Now all these men are her cousins. But I had everybody dance with me at the same time. So I look like this like crazy party girl. And then I looked at him to see like, have I scared him off yet? She's hoping that what she's going to see out of this dance is like, is he jealous? Is he conservative? Can he handle a girl who'll dance with a man? Or men. He still pursued me. And I was like, this is a good sign. He's not scared off. Maybe he's really liberal. Maybe he's just really mature. He asks to marry her three times. And on the third time, she says yes. And then Laleen gets married. And she enters a life that her Jane Austen novels had completely not prepared her for. He starts monitoring her movements, which friends she sees. I had to be really careful who I spoke to, what I did, where I went, what time I was home. She gets pregnant quickly. He moves her out to his mother's house in the countryside, far from her sister and everyone she knows. He's travelling around the world for business. She feels trapped. In this dark suburban house, country house, I couldn't wear what I wanted. I couldn't do what I wanted. I couldn't even take my kids where I wanted. I just became this, um, this shell. Laleen told me about some things that happened in her marriage, bad things, that in the end she didn't want to make public. But she did tell her older sister, Malia, and Malia told her... This is Pakistan. You've got to remember, your husband, he's in charge. So we have to ask them for permission for everything we do. It's not fair, but you have to make it work. We manage, you know, we know how to work the system. I'm sitting in Malia's living room with the two sisters. They are still arguing about this. Oh, this generation. And Laleen gets angry every time she remembers her sister's advice. When a marriage fails, it's your fault because you haven't been able to handle him properly. You still don't know how to make your ideas appear like his ideas. You still don't know how to... Yeah, that's you. You still don't... I mean, I'm like, I'm sorry, but... I mean, it's not my fault if a man is treating me badly. It's not my fault. Malia's advice to her little sister is... We have limited options. You've got kids. You just can't walk out. Your daughters will be judged. You know, oh, her mother is divorcee. It's a tough life for a single woman in Pakistan. Everything is difficult here. As you can see, I don't have electricity. I don't have gas. My, You know, you have to know someone to get everything done. And then on top of that, you're a single mom, and then you have to basically restart your career. And After the argument, I'm sitting with Laleen alone, and, yeah, she concedes. She was really naive about marriage. I wanted a dashing hero who would be everything that I had waited for and saved myself for my whole life. But that's not real life, is it? It's just the books you read and the movies you watch. (laughs) 
Do we have tissues? No, no. At the low point of her marriage, that's when she broke up with Jane Austen. I stopped reading and watching. She can't read the books. She can't watch the movies. I could feel very bitter afterwards. Why? Um, because I didn't have that. Because mine was a failed romance. It was a failed marriage. They all found happiness, didn't they? No matter what their lot. And they all found companionship. And I didn't. Moline's journey back to Jane Austen would begin with a move. Her husband moved them out of his mother's dark country estate into a bright house in the city where Laline had friends. And there she kind of starts following her sister's advice, carving out her freedom where she can find it. We had a meetup. One day, when her husband isn't around, she organizes a tea party. We had a little tea party and it was very cute. The women turn up in costumes that would have been worn in Jane Austen's time. And our Regency-inspired outfits feeling like utter fools. They have curls in their hair, flouncy skirts. What the hell are we doing? Laleen gives it a name, the Jane Austen Society of Pakistan, which is how I came to meet her. For the first time in years, I was doing something on my own. Netherfield ball or Longburn ball? Anyone? And I wasn't just going out and doing it. I was doing it with so many restrictions. Listen to this. It is better to know as little as possible of the defects of the person with whom you are to pass your life. Whose opinion is this? This slight ambition came back. And I just started feeling a little more alive and a little more hopeful. And so this teeny tiny casual literary club, which was really nothing more than a few Mrs. women getting together and talking, meant a lot to me. Who is Mrs. Hales? It is literally the only time housekeepers are ever mentioned except for Pemberley. Gradually, Laleen's real life and her fangirl life, they start to merge. She goes from dressing up as a Jane Austen character to writing a Jane Austen-themed story about Pakistan, governed by the same social conventions and restrictions. She calls her story On the Verge. I knew another prince would come my way, I thought, trying not to get too excited about it. My story, On the Verge, is about a young blogger inspired by Jane Austen. She lives in Lahore. She gets engaged to a very eligible man. The dastardly heir to a halal burger franchise, even while fending off pressure from the Rishta aunties. You're a lovely girl, Roya Beta, but do you know how many girls with decent backgrounds, anorexia and designer clothes are waiting to pounce on him? And before their wedding, she finds out that he's cheating on her. So she makes a lucky escape. You... Sounds like you're writing about yourself but intervening in the process so that you don't end up marrying him. Have you even read it? I mean, this is all fiction, isn't it? It's not like I'm writing a memoir. Laleen keeps insisting to me that she's definitely not that fictional character. It's not me. Because that fictional character was smart enough to leave the guy. She wasn't smarter than you. You just gave her the the benefit of hindsight. There were signs I should have understood. I think people who cared about me thought that I would have cancel the wedding and I was actually on the verge of cancelling it. Oh my God, the story is called On the Verge. (laughs) 
there are two curious things to point out about this moment. The first is that after three decades of seeing her own life reflected in Jane Austen's stories, Lillian had now started using Austen in a very different way, as a kind of alternate universe where she could work out problems that were too painful or just too embarrassing to face directly. But perhaps the most curious thing for me is that our reporter, Dia, had such a strong reaction to all this. It really bugged her that Laline was still so faithful to this author, an author whose heroines ultimately accept a world that vastly curtails their own freedom. And yet, every time I would suggest to Laline that, you know, what Jane Austen represented was actually a really dark system, something that had really constrained and held women back, and that's what really was reflected 200 years later in Pakistan. There was just constant pushback. And, you know, like as a reporter, I shouldn't be imposing my worldview on anyone else. But I kind of wanted her to say, F*** you, Jane Austen. Because <laughs> <laughs> why? Because... Oh, that, that, that we shouldn't be celebrating the gilded cage. Dia had lived her life avoiding that cage. I, you know, one day when this is all over and there's a bottle of wine between us, I can tell you, like, the crazy story of how I ended up getting married. This is nuts. Really? Yeah. We're getting married so we can date. (laughs) When we get back from the break, we get Dia to tell us her own crazy story. She'd kept a firewall between her personal life and her family, but what happens when that firewall collapses? Support for this podcast and the following message come from Gelmar CLR. Whatever you call your home, Gelmar knows you take great pride in keeping it clean. That's where CLR comes in. CLR dissolves calcium, lime, and rust all around the house using natural ingredients, not harsh chemicals. It even carries the EPA's Safer Choice seal. Keep your little piece of the planet looking its best with CLR, making the world a little cleaner. Support also comes from ACT, a flexible CRM trusted by millions worldwide. Go to act.com NPR to sign up for a free 14-day trial and see how growing your business is easier with ACT. Hey, Asma. Hey, Scott. Another crazy week. We've got North Korea. Yep, we got Russia. Midterms. And, of course, President Trump. And what happens whenever there is crazy news that erupts? We pop into the studio and break it down to make sense. So if you see a headline... We've discussed it. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. This is Rough Translation, and we're back with our story from Dia Hadid. It turned out that as Dia was reporting the story, when she was first invited to that tea party in Lahore... She had recently met a guy. That sounds nice. We're here. Thank you. Come on, let's relate Jane Austen to Yeah, that's the whole point. And her boyfriend, Mem, he just so happened to be a major Jane Austen fan. He is a Pride and Prejudice obsessive. What? And his favorite You're so lucky. (laughs) I'm I'm shaping this for you, Mem. He reads books. And so before we get back to the Pakistani sisters, we're going to spend a moment on Dia's love life. Right, I'm going to try to tell it as briefly as possible. A week before I started the job at NPR, I was on OkCupid and I saw a profile of a guy. His picture was kind of crap, but he looked funny and warm and engaging. He was a professional soldier. He'd been in the military for eight years. And 
you know, one tea turned into two teas and a baked cheesecake. And we must have just been chatting about literature one day. So he tells me that every year he and his sister sit down and they watch the 1995 BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, but they recite the lines out together because they've memorised every single word. Country manners. I think they're charming. And um, I really liked him. He was funny and smart and has this really odd laugh. My preference was to just not involve my family at all and to happily date this man. And he asked me if I was going to tell my family that we were seeing each other. And I would tell him, like, let's quietly date each other for a year or two and see if it works out. But he actually wanted it to be known to my family that we were seeing each other. He's very much a family person. Him being from his family, he totally doesn't get what kind of family you come from. Oh, I told him he didn't get it. Oh, I I told him and I tried to explain to him. Dia had lived her life knowing that she could not mention a boyfriend to her parents. For instance, I, I took a selfie with a guy in Spain and my father saw it. And that, you know, was like a few days of calling and apologizing and explaining and trying to brush it off and waiting for dad to answer the phone. I was trying to lay it out for ma'am, like the drama that's going to happen once I tell my parents that I'm seeing a guy who's not Muslim. But I, I did want to respect his decision that he wanted the relationship to be public. That's when I realized that I could date him and risk my family's, like, anger and sadness and face a whole lot of rejection, or we would fast-track to getting married, and that would bring my parents around sooner. You'd been, you'd been dating him for... Four weeks. Wow. We'd been dating for about four weeks. <laughs> That's quite a plunge. <sighs> so I did propose... In fact, I got down on one knee, but it was, you know, will you accept my intention to one day marry you? Five months after that proposal? Mem meets my parents every week just about for tea, and they like him. My mother thinks that he's just such a charming, wonderful person. And it struck me today that maybe one of the reasons why Mem has been so okay with this fundamentally different cultural context he's walked into, why he's been okay wooing my parents and why he hasn't freaked out is because he's read Jane Austen. I think it gave him this instinctive playbook for me, for my parents. Does it change how you see Austin or Austin's role in today's time? You know, I, it's, it's funny that you're doing exactly the same thing to me that I've done to Laline, um, which is <laughs> it's only when I stand here that I kind of realize what's happened. Um, and at this very moment, Greg, I am actually quite grateful for Jane Austen. I possibly should put down a rose on Jane Austen's grave and say thank you. (laughs) To her own surprise, 
Dia had come to admire the very thing about Jane Austen that she'd always hated, that the heroines accept these oppressive rules. Now she and Mem were taking advantage of those same rules of decorum to try and get what they wanted. But there is also the contrasting theme in Jane Austen. In Pride and Prejudice, one of the Bennet sisters, Lizzie, despite her mother's wishes, turns down a marriage proposal. You cannot be serious in your rejection. From a very eligible suitor. I thank you for the honor of your proposals, but to accept them is absolutely impossible. My feelings forbid it in every respect. This scene of defiance, it happens again and again in Austen books, where a heroine stands up for her principles, despite everyone telling her that to do so is imprudent. And it happens also in Laline's fan fiction story. She's let her heroine avoid the ending that she so miserably blundered into, which was this unhappy marriage. She needed Jane Austen, she needed that prism to help her understand her own life as it was. And I think that gave her the confidence to do what she did next, which was ask her husband for a separation. Do you think we should have separate houses, adjoining houses, and share the children? And then he came to me and he said, he came back, I had locked the door and he pretty much broke it down. And um, he said, I've taken the kids. And I said, I don't give you permission to take them away. He said, I'm taking them away. So I went to the police station and I said, I want to report something. And they said, what's your name? What's your phone number? What's your husband's name? And when I was writing it down, they just looked at me and they picked up the phone. They were calling him up to take me. To come and pick her up from the station. That's what she thought was happening. She goes to court, she gets custody, but even though the court orders the children to be returned to her, she says that he keeps taking them and not returning the kids, and she silently endures, and then she says one day she decides to fight. It's not an easy thing, but it's not impossible. She records this video. Just because it didn't work today doesn't mean it's not going to work. I have faith that I'll get them back. He's been doing this all year. This is not the first time. It's only the first time that I've gone public. She posts the video on Facebook and her sister, Malia, immediately calls her and tells her to take it down. With nothing, no penalty. Anything is possible in this country and why put yourself out there? I kept telling her, wait, 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 wait. Laleen had married a really powerful person. Be cautious. Laleen actually disregards Malia's advice and she ramps it up. She crashes through the limits of convention. I'm here at Banigala Police Station. I'm here to file a complaint against uh, fa- the father of my children. She posts uh, another video on Facebook, and this time she's confronting the police. She's demanding that they enforce the court order. They keep telling her, put the camera away. They offer her tea. She says, I don't want tea, I just want my children. And they say, give madam some water. And she says, I don't want water, I only want justice. Gee, I have a court order in front of you which says that I have legal custody of my daughters. Laleen's Facebook post gets thousands of views, and despite her sister's warning, the comments are almost all positive. She also gets her kids back. Though it's not clear whether it was the pressure from the video or just the legal process doing its thing. What is clear is that Laleen herself has changed. I've completely rejected certain social codes. I've rejected them from my life. Uh, what will people think? I have rejected it from my life. 
and keeping up appearances. I reject that completely now. On Dia's last reporting trip, she encountered an entirely different Laleen. Laleen's holding a press conference for the launch of her book. It's a collection of stories. She's convinced six other Pakistani women to contribute their own Jane Austen-themed stories based on their lives. And even her older sister Malia has written one. I asked my husband for permission to make it more racy. He said, go for it. And the book's called Austenistan. Thank you. And congratulations to us all. Laleen is celebrated at the British Embassy in Lahore. Okay, we're ready. Please. It's a cool evening. You can hear a fountain in the background. There's a swing chair that's adorned with roses. She and her sister Malia are posing in front of large posters of the book. Okay. People are taking selfies with them. One more. After Dia's reporting trip to the launch of Ostenistan, she immediately went back to planning her wedding. Her fiancé, Mem, was still in Australia. Things were going well. She was going to get married to Mem with her parents' blessing. But when we called her next, things had taken a turn. Dad called me and said that he could never accept the marriage. Because they're worried about how others will see them? No. My parents are very religious and... They're pretty certain that it's um, against, against the religion for a Muslim woman to marry a non-Muslim man. Mem actually did offer to convert, but his conversion was rejected. He was very clear with my family that he was an atheist and that he was ceremonially converting to become a part of the family. They said it wasn't sincere, it wasn't genuine. You know, just as my Wi-Fi was coming in and out today, I, I got an email from a member of my family that tried to sound kind and, you know, said that she was willing to meet me and Mem, but that for reasons that she hoped I could understand, we shouldn't meet their children. Um, those children are my nieces and nephews. They know me and love me and I love them. It's, the body blows sometimes feel unbearable. Jane Austen's heroines lived in a world where they didn't have the option of having private lives. They had to make all their hardest choices under the reproachful gaze of the whole village. In Austen's telling, it's those public failures that help them discover who they are and what they most care about. And now that we've had to fight for the past few months and just like wade through all the crap that my family has thrown, I want to marry this man even more. Yeah. We got Dia back on the phone after her honeymoon. Yes. Do you want me to tell you what happened? Yeah, can you maybe tell us, like, just something about the wedding? Okay. I'm going to barrel through, okay? Sure. So the day I had to fly out from Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan, to Perth, in Australia, to get married, I was late for my flight. 
and the airport was incredibly crowded. I mean, there were like hundreds of people outside the airport who couldn't get in. And so I had to leave my luggage behind and just like grab my little carry-on that had a fresh T-shirt and pair of jeans in it and my grandmother's earrings. And I had to run through a crowd, just elbows out. I separated a woman from her baby in a carriage. I was, they had to kind of like rejoin them together. <laughs> like I ran, I bolted, I leapt over security barriers. I was just like, I've got to get married. I'm so sorry. I never do this. I was just like crazy lady in the airport. <laughs> and I got to the Emirates desk and I was like, my luggage is outside and I'm inside. Like, well, you have to go back and get it. It's like, there's no way. And that moment was just like, do I really want that baggage? Like, that baggage was the wedding dress, my shoes, my contact lenses, my jewellery, the picnic blankets for everyone to sit on, four metres of silk chiffon to wrap around, like, the little, like, stand that we were going to have. And every single one of these items represented the misery of planning my own wedding without my family. I was just standing at that Emirates desk thinking, you have a chance to just let go. <laughs> like, you're actually just going to leave all the baggage behind and you're going to do the one thing, like that one thing that you wanted to do. Ma'am, please now say the words that you have chosen to say. I left my baggage at the door. Dear Khan, I met you and at once I fell in love with you. And uh, I took my flight. I in love with you each day since. And the only two members of my family who turned up to my wedding were my niece and nephew. And my niece, I often give her my old vintage dresses. And so she turned up with a beautiful peach vintage dress that I'd given her a few years ago. And my favourite pair of scuffed leather shoes that I'd also given her a few years ago. And that's what I wore to my wedding. I, Emmanuel Elliot Blake, take you, dear El Rodwa be my lawful wedded wife. And we got married. <laughs> if I could have picked a fairy tale wedding, it would have been on a lovely, like blustery, bright day. Kiss each other to begin your married life. In a garden by the sea with men. Today's show was produced by Jess Jang. Our editor is Marianne McCune. Original music by John Ellis. Thanks to Asatar Khan in the NPR Pakistan Bureau and Michael May of NPR Story Lab for field producing and editing. Also thanks to Nishant Dahlia, Stacey Vanek-Smith, Sarah Gonzalez, Maha Sayed, Karen Duffin, Alex Goldmark, David Kestenbaum, and Sana Krasikov for their invaluable feedback. Will Dobson runs NPR's International Desk. The Rough Translation Pantheon is Neil Carruth, Mathilde Piard, and Anya Grunman. Susie Cummings fact-checked this episode and mastering by Andy Huther. This is the last episode of our second season. We are going back to reporting more stories from a cross-cultural perspective. But let me ask you something before we go. If you like these kind of stories, if you like this stuff in your podcast feed, there is something you can do to help us right now. And it is free. You can tell a friend about the show and leave a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. We have a how-to video on our Facebook page. It literally takes one minute, but that one minute really does help us convince the people who support the show to keep us going. So thanks for listening. I'm Gregory Warner, back this fall with more Rough Translation. Thank you.
Support for NPR and the following message come from the Candida Fund, supporting individual dignity and sustainable communities through investments in transformative leaders and ideas. Learn more at kendedafund.org.